Talking Tennis with Linda Sirk. Welcome to episode two of Talking Tennis with Linda, powered by the Cavisham Lawn Tennis Club, but is open to absolutely everyone as I sit down with those who help make the tennis world go round and find out all about their story. Now, I'm delighted to have with me someone who I've known for a very long time, as we used to work together at a regional BBC radio station in Berkshire, England, and he now has the much-coveted role of being the sports guy on the BBC Radio 2 Breakfast Show with Zoe Ball. It is my Mike Williams. Hi, Mike. Hi, Linda. Great to speak to you. Yes, it's been ages, hasn't it? How are you doing? It's been far too long. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i doing great, obviously, all things considered at the moment during the pandemic. But but great to be on with you and to, to reminisce about some of those fun times. Uh, but I well, know. what was it? 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, yes, back yes. at uh, the BBC in Berkshire. <laughs> Yes, before I started, uh, well, before I hit the record button, we had a good old uh, reminisce, didn't we, about all the nightclubs in Reading. I know, most of which that I remember you're telling me aren't there anymore, which is very sad. It's sad, isn't it? We're here to talk about tennis, of course. But first of all, let's just dispel the myth, shall we, of there being any glamour being a broadcaster right now. Uh, Tell us where (laughs) you are at the moment. Well, yes, at the moment and for the past year, in fact, I have been doing all of my radio broadcasting, both on Radio 2 and elsewhere on places like Five Live and the BBC World Service, uh, all from home. Such a, is the wonder of modern modern technology that uh, as soon as the pandemic and lockdown struck, uh, I was uh, sent some kit in the post uh, from my bosses. Uh, and I've been broadcasting on that. It's essentially a microphone and a fancy box which you plug into your router, uh, link it up to your uh, Wi-Fi and use your laptop as well. And you can broadcast over the internet uh, online uh, as such. And it's it's hopefully, touch wood, broadcast and studio quality. It's actually what I'm speaking to you on now. Hopefully you know, it's coming across nice and clearly. And yes, yeah, since uh, April, May last year, 2020, I've been uh, broadcasting on that. I mean, there's pros and cons, obviously. Uh, In some ways, it's great not to have to commute to work. It's great to sometimes be able to work in your pyjamas and and, uh, multitask. I can be feeding feeding my one-year-old daughter at the same time as writing a sport bulletin. Uh, But of course, the cons are that uh, the kit can be fallible sometimes and has taken me off air a couple of times. Uh, And also, you just, you know, I didn't particularly get into radio to do all my broadcasting from home. I miss the studio. I miss the energy of having a live team and just being there in in, in the thick of it. So I think once this is all over, uh, I am looking forward to getting back uh, amongst it. But at the moment, speaking to you, as I say, I've got my microphone set up and I'm sitting uh, in my lounge at home, uh, just looking at uh, the, the, the detritus of having an 11-month-old uh, baby. We've got xylophones, we've got building blocks, stuffed toys, musical instruments all over the floor, which uh, I tell myself will be tidied away at some point, but whether they actually are or not, I'm not so sure. Glamour definitely been dispelled now. But, you know, being on the BBC Radio 2 breakfast show, I mean, BBC Radio 2 is the most popular station in the UK. You know, 15 million listeners. Uh, you start at, so, well, the show starts at 6.30am. Uh, so your working day must start ridiculously early, Mike. So tell us a bit about that. It does, yeah. So again, in normal times, when I am going into the studio, uh, I get an alarm call at around 4am, uh, about 3.45, 4am, uh, and a taxi uh, picks me up and takes me into the studio, and I aim to be in the studio for 5. Uh, as you say, the show starts at 6.30, but being in for 5 gives me a chance to uh, say hello to the team, get logged on, and just be across uh, the morning agenda. So that's reading the papers, it's uh, logging into the BBC uh, system to find out what audio there is, 
is, what uh, is going to be my lead story that day, gives me a chance to start writing uh, a couple of the sport bulletins and just figuring out what uh, what we're going to be talking about on, on the show that day, as well as saying hello to Zoe and the, the rest of the team ahead of uh, the show coming on air at, uh, at 6.30. And then we're on air all the way through till 9.30. Uh, and then there's usually a debrief and I do a bit of prep sometimes for the next day. But uh, yeah, usually leaving uh, work by sort of mid-morning and uh, uh, yeah, sort of leaves me free to, to crack on with the rest of the day. And we're going to be talking about your experiences of working as a journalist now at Wimbledon um, and at other tennis venues. And, you know, you're going to give us some great glimpses behind the scenes, you know, interviewing the stars of the tennis world, including Andy Murray. But first, I would like to start at the beginning of your journalism journey, which starts in uh, Reading, doesn't it? So uh, tell us more about how you started out. It does. It starts with you and the rest of our colleagues back in the day at uh, BBC Radio Berkshire. And yeah, I uh, was born in Leicester and grew up in Leicestershire. But my uh, family on my father's side were all originally from Reading. Uh, It led to me supporting Reading Football Club. And uh, those reasons and others meant that I gravitated towards Reading uh, to go to university. So uh, tipped up in Berkshire in 2006 uh, to start a three year uh, undergrad at uh, University of Reading. But just had this big passion for, for radio and broadcasting so started to initially volunteer but uh, very quickly sort of was taken on on a casual basis at Radio Berkshire on the sports team with Tim Deller and a guy called Joel Hufford at the time uh, who, who brought me into the team and I sort of yeah worked my way up uh, through there really through the local radio ranks uh, started off as like an assistant producer being the, the Saturday boy if you like making the teas interviewing uh, or meeting greeting the guests taking the calls that sort of thing and then yeah just slowly worked my way up started reading bulletins started working on other shows across the station but yeah so I was sort of trying my hand at all things at uh, at Radio Berkshire and loved it uh, had three four brilliant years there and then after my uh, undergrad degree at University of Reading sort of made the big switch to London and uh, started uh, yeah progressing in other parts of the BBC there and notably nice. Five Live and, uh, and the World Service. Now when it comes to tennis um, you know obviously being a sports presenter you have to be uh, knowledgeable in all types of sports but in tennis, I mean, you've you've been going to Wimbledon for the past what, eight years. Obviously, not last year, but you know, you are very uh, well versed in terms of Wimbledon and tennis stars. Uh, you know, you've even uh, you were was it the presenter of or you did the commentary for the 2019 Federer Djokovic final? Yeah, the, the men's singles tennis? final in 2019, Amazing. which was the last men's final, I guess, to date, uh, because yeah. not having won last year, that that was the last men's final, and uh, yeah, absolute privilege to uh, not just witness that but to be on center court in the bbc commentary box presenting coverage of that epic match between uh, uh, federer and Djokovic for the bbc world service so for the millions of people listening around the world uh, i was uh, yeah, very privileged to to present coverage uh, of that match back in uh, in july 2019 and tell us a bit about what it's like being in the commentary box at center court it's as i say a real privilege you uh, have to pinch yourself because you are so close to the action. Uh, You're obviously behind a screen because it is a box and that allows the the commentators uh, who are sitting alongside me sort of calling the the play-by-play action uh, to to be able to raise their voices when everyone else is is trying to keep hushed tones. Uh, But you are still so close. I mean, you're talking two, three metres away from the action. You're in one of the far corners as the players, it's actually right above the entrance where the players emerge from and and depart the court. So if you can picture it on TV when they uh, often follow the players out when they uh, perhaps first emerge for, for, for the final with uh, usually one of the ball boys or girls carrying their bags, the players come out uh, to great acclaim. 
if you then if the camera can pull out or if you can look next time you, you see those pictures just to the right above there's uh, what I can probably only best <laughs> describe as three little green sheds they're, 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 they're sort of uh, painted they're very small very compact but they're painted green like the rest of um, the uh, centre court just so, so, so they blend in uh, but, but it is essentially a garden shed with a glass frontage uh, and that is the BBC commentary box it, it's, it's split into three different compartments and different parts of the BBC use each compartment so the biggest one would be used for BBC Radio 5 Live which would broadcast uh, of course the, the, the women's and men's finals of uh, Wimbledon weekend and throughout the whole Wimbledon fortnight they are in there and then the other two boxes are used either for uh, regions nations and regions or for the World Service which was the programme that I was working on back in 2019 and the BBC World Service box is actually the very first box you come to but yeah I have to emphasise how tight it is and how compact you feel I mean I was in there for five and a half hours and didn't really have much opportunity but to go uh, to the toilet but if, even if I wanted to it was a real <laughs> tight squeeze to get in and out there and there was myself there was Rene Stubbs Greg Rosetsky and uh, a couple of commentators on rotation all squeezed in but I mean the final was so epic that day that uh, you know you didn't really want to move or be anywhere else that so that, that's the main sort of broadcast commentary box another commentary box which uh, is much further back right at the very top if you like is the uh, written and uh, website uh, commentary box you can also do some broadcasting from there and that's uh, as you mentioned when I do stuff for Newsbeat that is the uh, location there and that just gives you a completely different perspective on Centre Court because you can see the whole bowl of the stadium from that uh, vantage point so uh, two very different perspectives on that famous court I mean they, they both offer something different and are, and are unique in that sense uh, but yeah it does both of them completely capture the magic of Centre Court and there is really nowhere quite like it and of course in the tennis world Wimbledon is hallowed turf and you know for someone like me I've never made it to Wimbledon yet never won the ballot you know my parents say that they took me there when I was two but of course I can't remember that so that's good <laughs> um, you know so for those who've never been to Wimbledon before can you describe the atmosphere and what it's like being behind the scenes and having one of those access all areas passes it is just magical and it's I think enhanced by the fact that you don't have to have gone to Wimbledon to kind of know what to expect because we've grown up on it haven't we? we we've seen it for for years and for decades on our TVs on our radios we know what Wimbledon Fortnite is all about it's about the queues outside it's the snaking queue lines of people to get in it's the outside courts it's the strawberries and cream it's the mm. the, the 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 sounds of the of the courts to your left to your right you know it's the beautiful foliage that is uh, you know honed and pristine for 11 and a half months all in preparation for this uh, famous fortnight of tennis so you, you you kind of even on your first visit you are telling yourself what to expect but and it, it just completely lives up to all those expectations when you walk through the gate for the very first time my, my first uh, uh, visit to Wimbledon wasn't uh, as a broadcaster it was actually whilst I was at university the, uh, in Berkshire in, uh, in Reading and uh, one of my friends had uh, won tickets or I think his parents had won tickets in the ballot and I just went as a punter uh, must have been probably 2008-2009 and just went uh, yeah on, an, on a ground pass ticket walking around looking uh, at 
all of the tennis uh, you could in, in as long as you had on that day and just soaking up as much as uh, as you could. I mean, you don't obviously get to go on in the um, show courts uh, with a grand pass, but you can just go and watch matches you would never usually perhaps go out of your way to watch. But because you're there, you take it all in and it really is a, a special day. And then to be then be able to return as a broadcaster and have this sort of triple A pass, if you like, access all areas to, to go and experience <laughs> the other side of Wimbledon is just even more magical. I mean, the broadcast centre at Wimbledon is, is is an operation in itself. I mean, obviously, there is so much attention on Wimbledon fortnight uh, during the championships that they need to accommodate hundreds and hundreds of media from around the world, whether that's TV journalists, radio journalists, online, bloggers, uh, social media these days, of course, as well. It is massive. And you go into the... It's at ground level, but there, there is this elevated uh, part of the building uh, of the broadcast Center, which is just turned into a little United Nations of media for that fortnight. <laughs> you go in and there are people from Japan, Australia, South Africa, Argentina, a big contingent from the USA, swathes of Europeans, journalists, and of course, every single uh, British uh, it's a newspaper title and respectable online website, uh, sport website is there in droves as well. So the media center is a, a really impressive operation. You know, everything from the canteen to the the roof of this broadcast centre, as I say, which is where you will often see on the TV highlights the likes of Sue Barker, Andrew Castle, Claire Balding, uh, hosting things from the roof if uh, we get good weather, which obviously isn't always guaranteed no. for Wimbledon <laughs> fortnight. But uh, when, the, uh, when the weather permits, you will see regularly the, the, the people uh, that I've just mentioned, John Inverdale, lots of uh, Radio 5 Live presenters, uh, all up on the roof presenting with the great and the good of the tennis world, the ex-pros, the McEnroe's, the Boris Beckers, the Annabelle Croft, are all up there and that is where you can literally be rubbing shoulders and perhaps going down in the lift with someone you think oh I think that was that's Philander there or I thought, oh no nothing oh there's Judy Murray over there and you think, but of course we're professional broadcasters and journalists so it's not the kind of place to be running up and getting selfies and autographs with these people but uh, you can sort of just wave at them and then <laughs> out of politeness they'll usually sort of wave back and they think do I know that person probably not uh, but, but the the uh, the broadcast centre as I say is the focal point uh, in terms of my day to day life at Wimbledon these days because it is there where you can go and get uh, briefing notes for uh, press conferences you can uh, if you didn't make it to a certain player's press conference you can get the readouts of what was said there you can go and uh, ask uh, sometimes to get one-on-one uh, interviews with with certain players probably not the, the very a-list players um, mm -hmm. but certainly uh, if, uh, if they're willing you can go and get uh, a quick one-on-one -on -one with uh, certain players in this uh, broadcast center so it is it is a really fascinating place and the other thing to reiterate as well is that for that fortnight it's 24 seven you know that that it is going all round the clock, including uh, I mean, I've been at Wimbledon before, pushing midnight, waiting for you. Sometimes we get matches you know, with the roof now, with this matches in, on centre that go on till uh, 10 o'clock sometimes, and then the fallout from each of those matches, and you can be there. It, it can be very long days, not that I'm complaining, but uh, when you're there for breakfast and then still there pushing midnight, you know, the, they, they certainly can be long days, but uh, you wouldn't have it any other way, because as I say, it's, it's a really magical place. Yeah, it sounds like a very well-oiled machine, the whole broadcast centre there. And uh, you were lucky enough to 
have uh, interviewed Andy Murray, not just once, but a number of times. And uh, I, I've, I've read a little article uh, that you did for BBC Newsbeat, and Newsbeat is aimed more towards like a teenage audience. So uh, you asked all sorts of questions I'm sure he's never been asked before, such as like, <laughs> what was the last song that he downloaded? And, and you actually revealed uh, what was kind of a, an exclusive nugget of information that he loved playing Angry Birds during his downtime as well. So yeah. what was that like, interviewing the great man? Oh, that was great. That interview there that you're referencing, I believe, was 2014 when I spoke to him at uh, Queen's, the traditional uh, Wimbledon warm-up tournament. But I I went to Queen's to interview him uh, to to write that piece with a view to previewing Wimbledon, where he was going, I believe, as defending champion, having uh, won it uh, for the first time in in, in 2013 and ending those 77 years without a male uh, singles champion at Wimbledon. So uh, he was hot property, as he still is, of course. But back then, the defending champion playing at Queens and I remember uh, in yeah going and asking him those really probing pressing questions <laughs> about what's your favorite app on your mobile uh, what music do you listen to what's your favorite film uh, and just trying to make it into something a bit more fun and something that hopefully the radio one and one extra audience would uh, uh, would enjoy in the in the build up to, to Wimbledon that year but yeah Andy Murray look he has this reputation doesn't he which won't come as any surprise you kind of know what I'm going to say as being a bit dour as being a bit downbeat as not really smiling much and not really giving you much and being a bit of a for want of a better word a bit of a doom and gloom merchant sometimes but to be honest yeah a little bit and you know, I mean, reputations and stereotypes are kind of true. Uh, or they exist for a reason, don't they? Because uh, a lot of them, to an extent, sometimes are true. And look, Andy Murray doesn't bounce into a room, high five everyone and uh, <laughs> crack jokes all the time. That won't come as a surprise. But he is a funny guy and he's got a very sort of he, he, he's got a sardonic sense of humor and I really like him. I have to say, I, having you know only met him less than a handful of times, and I'm sure he has uh, no opinion or even memory of, of meeting me, probably. But I, I really sort of clicked with him and and got a lot of respect for the guy, clearly for his tennis abilities and all that he's achieved on the course, and for the fact that, I mean, this is a straying into a separate answer on its own, but I mean, so much respect for the guy as a sportsman for not only his achievements in terms of winning the three Grand Slams, the two Olympic golds and becoming world number one and everything else he's achieved, but for literally carrying his sport in terms of uh, from a British perspective you know at least when we've had other world beaters in say cricket or rugby union or football or athletics there have been others who uh, have been those athletes contemporaries to sort of uh, shoulder the burden of of expectation and of what people uh, expect from elite sportsmen when it comes to tennis in the UK for the past 20 years singles tennis it has literally been Andy Murray, and that has solely rested on his shoulders alone. So to go out there with that weight of expectation, we know what it's like in Wimbledon fortnight when Tim Henman g- getting to Wimbledon semi-finals, which is an incredible achievement, and yet because he could never quite get over the line to a final and, and win the thing, is sort of, in some people's eyes, certainly not mine, and, and I'm sure by most tennis, not in most tennis fans' eyes, but to the great sporting public uh, in their wisdom, the, the, the British sporting public, is, is Tim Henman sort of seen as a, a little bit of a, um, uh, I don't want to use the word failure, but a, a, a bit of a jokey figure in that sense. Whereas Andy Murray, he went over there, got over the line, achieved it, and 
shouldered that weight of expectation on his own. So that is why I've got so much respect for the guy as a sportsman, but just as a bloke as well, we're similar ages, and I could just tell that he's actually a very down-to-earth, very astute, very articulate, very caring bloke when you read about the stuff he does extracurricular, the invest- charitable investments he makes, the um, the uh, his strive for uh, gender equality, amongst other things. You know, a very, very admirable bloke, and uh, always giving me the time as well. As I say, he was, I think he'd just come off court, just finished playing at Queen's in 2014, and 20 minutes later was talking to me about angry birds you know that tells you uh, tells you the measure of the man and uh, yeah uh, as i say been lucky enough to speak to him several other times since then most recently uh, on the radio 2 breakfast show when he came in and had a chat with zoe and myself at the end of 2019 when he was promoting the amazon prime documentary uh, which was all about him and his uh, recovery and his rehab from uh, the, the 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 back surgery that he had uh, and again was was brilliant there but uh, talking about tangents i remember back uh, in 2019 on Radio 2 we ended up talking to him about Strictly Come Dancing because uh, his uh, his mum had been in it previously and in the documentary uh, Andy Murray does a bit of um, uh, break dancing uh, in the doc so we were talking about dancing and whether he would ever go into Strictly so he's uh, always prepared to talk about other stuff as well as uh, Strictly talking tennis uh-huh. and I think that documentary really showed his sardonic sense of humour as well I think you know it really exposed him as not just as you say the dour man but actually behind that dourness is that great dark sense of humour. So I think, wow, it really showed him as a, as a great human being, as you say. And it's really Definitely. nice to get that insight. And I, I was also interested to read that when you interviewed Jamie Murray, his brother, that uh, Jamie said that he would never want to replace his brother in terms of career, but he wouldn't mind his bank account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think we'd all agree with that, wouldn't we? I mean, it was the yeah. same documentary. We saw uh, a few shots inside Andy and Kim's uh, very nice house in Surrey, didn't we? And I think yeah, that that's the the kind of place that uh, multiple Grand Slams and uh, and tennis uh, titles will win you. But you know, you don't begrudge him any of it because he uh, has been incredibly successful. But Jamie Murray on a different level. Again, yeah, been lucky enough to interview him a few times. Uh, he's been uh, most recently uh, on uh, Radio Two last year, in fact, talking about the the Battle of the Brits, where the tournament that he helped uh, organise to try and fill that uh, COVID void uh, last year with the uh, the couple of tournaments down at Roehampton. Uh, again, lovely bloke and his older brother of course the first couple of times I've interviewed him it's it's almost the elephant in the room is that of course Jamie is an incredibly successful and accomplished tennis player in his own right uh, as uh, as a doubles player predominantly uh, so you want to talk to him about those things but when you have a sibling who's even more famous you kind of it's a bit remiss of me as a journalist to not sometimes at least sort of ask about that so there's always that guilt of sort of saying well I also kind of need to ask you about your brother as Ooh. well despite <laughs> How does that go but, down? but again but you know a bit like Andy Jamie it's so sweet so understanding and he sort of gets it you know he's had it his his whole life and uh is very accommodating and obliging and will always sort of have a little dig at his brother and uh, and a joke and <laughs> and but also so you see on the court all the time how much they support each other you only need to look back to their time in the davis cup together how much they they root for each other 
uh, and th- that that is there to see that that sort of brotherly solidarity is there to see as well and of course Judy is the is the glue that holds them both together and uh, it's re- what I re- find really commendable in her is that she clearly as a mother uh, as <laughs> as you I'm sure would uh, also uh, sympathize with you that there is no favoritism and uh, she treats them both completely the same despite Andy being by far the most more recognizable and, and famous athletes she treats them completely the same and whether it's Jamie in a, in a Grand Slam final with the doubles she's there on centre court or on, on the main court watching uh, the same with Andy uh, she is completely even handed with both of them and, and supports and encourages them uh, just the same and you've also interviewed uh, Joe Conter as well, haven't you? So what's she like as a player off court, shall we say? Joe Conter's lovely. Yeah, really, really, really nice woman. Very ambitious, very driven, as I guess you have to be to, to try and reach the top. This was, uh, again, uh, 2019, I think, during her purple patch where she was uh, making Grand Slam semi-finals and really trying to make a, 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 a push on Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, just, just a very very kind and and generous woman with her time and uh, very obliging with her answers and to be honest and this is not me sort of giving a politician's answer here there's not been not many tennis players if if any that I've uh, found to be the other side of the coin really in terms of being rude or cantankerous you know sometimes they will give you short shrift in terms of that that they're they're not in the zone to be uh, conducting interviews but if you catch them on their day uh, when they want to be they are usually very obliging and and uh, and accommodating as I say the only one who I and again I don't even want to criticize him too much um, here but the only one that I had a bit of short shrift from was uh, you wouldn't be probably surprised to hear was Nick Kyrgios uh, a few years ago at at Wimbledon Uh, when he had actually, it was after his his landmark victory, the the, the result that announced him uh, on the world stage, if you like, when he beat Rafael Nadal uh, at Wimbledon in the first week. He uh, had beat Nadal, big shock. This was one of these late matches that I was talking about earlier. Uh, and he had beat Nadal and was then doing these round of interviews. And I was there for Radio 1 and Nick Grimshaw's team had actually asked me to get a specific question. Uh, to Nick Kyrgios for use on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show the next morning. So I had hung around until it was gone 10.30. It was probably 10.30, 10.45 at night in the bowels of the broadcast uh, centre just uh, next to centre court that I mentioned at Wimbledon. And finally, in comes Nick Kyrgios with this uh, uh, sort of army of press officers and Wimbledon media liaison people, sits down. And for the life of me now, I should have thought, uh, if I knew I'd be telling this anecdote, I should have tried to remember the question because I can't quite... <laughs> I remember it but it was something very uh, it was it was it was a sort of a wacky question that would have needed a bit of prep from him and the poor guy I mean what was he back then probably only about 19 20 years old he just had enough and we know Nick Kyrgios can be surly and uh, have a little bit of an attitude at the best of times and despite his, his famous victory he just wasn't interested he came in he sat down I looked at him introduced myself asked this question and his eyes couldn't have rolled further back in his head I don't think he looked at his media and said I'm not bleep answering that got up and walked off oh my god and that was my night and that that is how i had waited for probably an hour and a half almost two hours to get that uh i mean annoyingly i didn't even record that bit because i thought at least we could have we could have played that bit out you know we could have said that oh our reporter i hadn't even got the uh my microphone turned on in time for that but anyway, uh, you well, live you know, and learn, and you know. Yeah, and, and, that's, he's, that's and he, who he has is. got that bad boy image, isn't he? And I can't forgive him for those underarm serves. I'm sorry. Ah! No. 
That no, drives me nuts, no. that does. But in the world of tennis, because it is generally quite a, a very polite world, isn't it? You know, and I guess if we zoom out a little and compare the different sporting worlds, you know, your rugby's, your footballs, your hockey's, your crickets, and of course the tennis, you know, from a journalistic point of view, what is your impression of the sport? I mean, is it um, still regarded as a bit of an elitist sport? Is there a noticeable big drive to push British tennis? There's certainly an argument to say that tennis is perhaps not elitist, but uh, a sport that is beyond some in terms of its accessibility i don't think uh, there are, well there are certainly swathes of uh, the sporting public and say the uh, tv uh, audience in in the country that don't tune in to to wimbledon fortnights and uh, other big tennis moments when they're on tv just because there's that disassociation with tennis uh, on the flip side of that there is a whole swathe of people in this country my wife included uh, she would uh, be the first person i think of when i talk about people who uh, wouldn't claim to be avid tennis fans for 50 weeks of the year but wimbledon fortnight rolls around and they are watching elena svitolina against simona halep to the bitter end in the third round you know they're, they're putting everything else on hold because they are engrossed in these matches and they're following the fortunes of all these players who hitherto they'd uh, barely heard of but now sort of know their life story and you know that i think is the power of not just wimbledon but having a tournament like wimbledon our national championships on free-to-air tv without wanting to sort of bang the corporate bbc drum to <laughs> much you know you talk about you you talk about rumors and danger of uh, Wimbledon potentially going behind a paywall or going to um, a subscription or to uh, satellite television or, or going uh, online uh, because there's uh, there's only a, a legal or um, a government ruling over the finals so the men's and women's finals have to be on free-to-air tv but the other uh, 12 days of Wimbledon could theoretically go behind a, a paywall and uh, thankfully the BBC have managed to keep Wimbledon on free-to-air tv for, for coming up to 100 years now or so certainly been broadcasting mm. Wimbledon for 100 years 1920s was uh, the first time the uh, BBC radio first started broadcasting from from Wimbledon so really important that for its exposure for tennis's exposure and its relevance you know in 2021 and, and going forward into the next decade that the the big flagship event for British tennis like Wimbledon the grass court season remains on free-to-air TV and radio uh, on the BBC um, but yeah I, I think it, it would be wrong for tennis to try and challenge the dominance of say uh, uh, cricket uh, football rather first and foremost and cricket in the summer because they're, they're, they're different sports and there's different audiences there but I think as long as you have it on free-to-air television as long as you have big characters hopefully some of them British like Nick, uh, like Nick Kyrgios as well uh, but then also the, the Joe Contas and the next wave of uh, British men coming through uh, to, to, to try and bring some success as well that uh, hopefully tennis has, has got a pretty good future. Mike thank you so much it's been absolutely brilliant hearing your insights into the world of sport from a journalism point of view and also hearing how you got into the world of, uh, of tennis and sports reporting as well so thank you so much. Thank you Linda loved it cheers. Talking Tennis with Linda Sirk. Well, how about that, ladies and gentlemen? Wasn't that just absolutely amazing? Thank you so much to Mike Williams, who you can hear every weekday morning on BBC Radio 2's Breakfast Show with Zoe Ball. And as you heard, Mike kicked off his career in Reading, Berkshire. And if you live in the area and fancy giving tennis a go, come and visit the Caversham Lawn Tennis Club. We are a friendly international club with lots going on. You can head to caverhamltc.co.uk for more information. 
And also, thank you so much to Reading DJ producer Uwees for supplying the music and Slough's D-Ray Kickit for the show voiceover. You can join me in a few weeks for the third episode where WTA professional tennis coach Mark Gellard reveals some amazing insights into the world of coaching and offers some unmissable tips for your own gameplay. So until then, keep talking tennis. Bye-bye.